We're going to talk about Acts 5. We're going to continue this walk through Acts. I know many of you are saying, Acts again. At least you'll know where it is. And we're going to cover both parts of it, but I want to kind of go out of order a bit. I'm going to go to the back half, but use that to help understand the first half. I think I would subtitle this sermon, Points of View, along with Who Do You See? And I think I'm going to challenge the common view that there's a Dr. and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde view of God, which I personally don't hold. So I don't know where this sits with everybody. I'm going to offer it gently for you to consider it, and you can make your own observations as you like. We do have a handout in here. You'll see I'll be following through the verses roughly in order so that you can follow along with at least a a flash of how I get to where I'm getting. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Our Lord and Father, we ask you to come into this place. You are wherever we are. There's nothing more or less about this building except that we agreed to be here. But we ask your Holy Spirit to fill this place. We ask you to open up our hearts and minds as to who you truly are, who Jesus tried to reveal, and can we find a message in the challenges of Acts 5 through the lens of who Jesus is, because if we've seen Jesus, then we've seen you. We ask all of this in your precious name. Amen. I want to first begin with a story. I want you to imagine, but I'm going to tell you that this story is true. I say that with a pause, and you'll see why when I give you the rest of the story. But I'm going to give you the first part of it, and it, it is true to that extent. I'm not lying in any way, but it's about a point of view. So you're going to find some of the story isn't quite as it seems, but it is as it seems right now. Imagine yourself that you're asleep in your bedroom. In this case, it's a guy who's asleep in his bedroom. Um, And all of a sudden, he gets woken up. He gets bound up. And there's a person talking to him, but they're trying to describe their voice so much so that he doesn't really understand what they're trying to say. It's muffled, something. And he doesn't really understand what's happening. But he's getting bound up in his own bed and sheets and getting yanked out of his bedroom, yanked down his hallway. And as he's getting yanked down his hallway, they're also using some sort of bad gas, and he can't even breathe. So, I mean, is he getting kidnapped, robbed, or murdered, or... I mean, all of these things are challenging for him. He doesn't understand any of it. He's just completely confused. And it isn't a dream. It's really happening to him. And he's getting drugged down his hallway and thrown out into his front yard. That's at least one version of that story. We'll leave that for now. You can wonder whether it's true or not. We'll get back to it. But it is a point of view. And I hope that it will help you understand what I'm about to discuss How about points of view and who do you see in Acts 5? We're going to start first in Acts 5.12 and talk a bit about Peter and the apostles. This is the easier part of Acts 5, I think, at least for me. And basically, Peter and his apostles are talking about Jesus most every day in Solomon's porch. 
It's on the east side of the temple. It's the place where everybody can come. It's not exclusive to women or men. Everyone can hear their message, but it's still in the home church, so to speak. Largely the message is to Jews. It's also in some ways the hospital, because in that day when you weren't well or you had some kind of affliction, there wasn't a doctor to see, so much so that you hung around the temple and waited for God to restore you. And so Peter and the rest of the apostles were there. Obviously, their spin on what the truth was was making the church pretty uncomfortable because they were teaching, as Pastor talked last week, about the resurrection, and the home church doesn't really believe in that. And they were talking about this rabbi named Jesus who previously, maybe a year or so, maybe a little more, had been hung on the cross. Everyone had called for him to die, and he was resurrected. So we don't like that either because we don't believe in the resurrection and that's what they're teaching. And so we, the church, I'm speaking on behalf of the temple right now, we have them arrested and we throw them in prison. And we say, fine, we'll deal with this tomorrow. They're in prison, hee hee. And then the next morning when we go to pull them out of prison, they're not there anymore. The guards are there. The doors are still locked, but they're not in prison. Do you know where they are? And the interesting thing is they aren't where they were before. Like when Jesus got crucified and they were about to get in trouble, they did things like deny who Jesus was and hid in the upper room so that they wouldn't be harmed anymore. But after the Holy Spirit had come to them, they were much bolder about who they thought Jesus was and what the good news was. And they were no longer concerned with the idea that they need to be safe. They only wanted to share what the good news was. And so they got out of prison, and instead of hiding or moving where they're teaching or anything else, they went right back where God said to go. Go preach on the porch where Jesus had preached and share the good news. And so they're right back there in front of everybody doing what they were doing yesterday, doing the exact same thing today. Does that seem safe to you? I mean, friends, honestly, they're trespassing. But the angel of the Lord led them out of prison, past the guards who were guarding or sleeping. We don't have any information there, but... At any rate, they're right back, and all they're going to do is get rearrested. That's what's going to happen. They're going to get rearrested. But they're not, they're not hiding anymore, friends. They're not afraid of getting caught telling the good news. And that is a bit of something we're hoping through this walk through Acts that you all begin to feel as well. Because I think all of us at times feel afraid to share the good news. And I don't mean that you should all be up here preaching. I'm not at all advocating that for you. But however you can share the good news, wherever you may be, and then you think, oh, I don't want to offend anyone. I just keep it to myself. That we want to help you be encouraged to be more bold. 
Because whether you get caught or challenged or whatever, if you're about the business, you're about the business, friends. And we don't want you to be afraid of that. And so they take them again, and they decide to take them back for a trial and imprison them again. And then they have a bit of a discussion, which I didn't include in our notes, but it's in the back end of Acts, where someone says, hey, we've had fake guys come through, and their followers have died out. And so if what they're doing is of God, we can't stop it anyway. But if it isn't of God, it'll just die out. And so it continues to this day and this place. So they get released from prison after we beat them to learn a lesson. And do you know what they did after they got let out twice and were gladly beaten? Where did they go next? Right back to the same place. And I thought, man, that just seems... Friends, that just doesn't seem safe. It, it feels dangerous. But that is the change in these friends. Because the good news is that important that you keep going and you don't hide anymore. And it reminded me in Daniel 3 about those boys. In Daniel 3, where they were called to worship the statue. And they said, we're not doing that. And they said, great, we're going to throw you in this hot, hot fire. And they basically said what the apostles didn't say. They said, look, we're not changing. You could throw us in the fire or not. But we're not changing what we're doing. We're going to go back to do what we do. Throw us in the fire and maybe we perish or maybe we don't. That's not our problem. We're going to continue to stand for the good news. And you know, school children know this story well. They get thrown in the fire, and two things happen when they get thrown in the fire. The first thing is, what happens to Shadrach, Bezhnak, and Abednego? What happens to them? Come on, children, someone knows this answer. They went into the fire? They were fine in the fire? So they were like the first firemen. All right. And there was another, a fourth person in that fire with them, right? Right? Jesus was there right with them in the fire. But the exact same fire, what happened to the guys that threw them in? They burned and died. So the fire isn't any different. It's the same fire for everybody. And the ones that loved Jesus stood around in it and did fine, and came out of the fire, and were fine, while those that didn't know the good news about Jesus were destroyed by that fire. And that gets me wondering, back to the first part of Acts, and I think that's a clue for us to the first part of Acts. Because in the first part of Acts, if we go back there, we really, and the chapters in the Bible are where they are, and no one can tell you why it is, friends. Because this bit in the first part of chapter five belongs with information in chapter four, where people agreed as a group to share things in common. If you had stuff and you were gonna sell it, you would give it to the team. And we took care of feeding and clothing and managing the group by combining our income. 
I would tell you it's a lot like being married. You agree when you get married that you're going to put your money into a single pot generally. That isn't 100% true, but for the most marriages, everybody's money, little or big, goes into a group pot, and you share it all for the needs of the group, sometimes for the fun of the group, sometimes for one person. You can get your nails done, or you can go golfing. But the team sort of agrees how it works. And I will tell you, friends, that if you take money out of the public money and don't share that and keep it in secret and get caught. <laughs> Deborah says, ho, ho, ho. Richard, run! <laughs> Maybe a little close to home, but you know, just think about that for a moment. It isn't about the amount of the money or anything at all. If you sneak it out and don't tell, and you already know it's not okay, and your, your spouse doesn't know, what starts to happen in you? I, I, I mean, for me, I get kind of super uncomfortable. You start worrying about getting caught. And nothing's changed about Sandy at all. Remember, she doesn't even know. But now I got to worry about being discovered. And how do I hide it? And how do I not get it to be discovered? And that just turns and turns and turns into something um, uncomfortable, at least. At least. Or as Deborah said, oh, oh, oh. But we. I think we've got to understand something here because in this story, these people do hold something back and they both die. They lie separately on behalf of the same idea. They're not caught, they're not tried together. You are individually responsible for what you do, not as a group. You have to make your own choices. Your partner can't save you or condemn you. And they found out they were holding stuff back from the group and they died. And and some people are going to tell me, and maybe even some of you will tell me, that this is sort of God punishing them. And for me, I'm uncomfortable with this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde view. That somehow, God's going to love me and kill you. And I'm super not down with that. And that's very Old Testament. I'm not saying it isn't in the Bible of us saying God wants us to smite things. It's there. I'm not going to really fully reveal why I think it's there, but it's there. And we like to have God tell us to smite things. We do that. But it doesn't look like Jesus to me, friends. I don't find anything in the actions of Jesus that looks like that. And so I'm wondering if there's another point of view about this situation that doesn't just involve God loving me and smiting you. And it feels to me more like what I was describing when I try to sneak something that I shouldn't. And nothing out there's changed. It's me that's a bit caught and a bit uncomfortable and a bit changed by what I've done. Even if no one else has discovered it, it's about what I have done. Because we're going to share with you, and here we believe, and we heard the children sing it, friends, and we in the group here, believe God is love. 
that love keeps no record of wrongs, that love is long-suffering, that love forgives, that love does all of these wonderful things. 1 Corinthians 4 through 8. It rejoices in all things, hopes for all things. That's what we think love looks like. And nowhere there does it say love kills people who don't love. It doesn't say that. And, friends, we know the action of what happens is through Jesus. And Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's in Hebrews. We're looking at Hebrews 13, 8. In Malachi, in the Old Testament, 3, 6, he says, The Lord, I am the Lord, I do not change. So I'm not comfortable with someone telling me that somehow God is nice here and mean there. Because it feels like a change to me. It doesn't feel consistent. And I know we're going to stand here and say we spank children we love. And I think that's all well and good that discipline is part of a loving relationship. That correction is part of a loving relationship. I'm not at all in conflict with that or with God disciplining. But when we're talking about dying, there's not discipline in death. There's just death. So that's the angle I'm concerned with. And in John 17, 3, this is the very bottom of the first page, it says, this is to eternal life, that they know you, we're talking about God now, they know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So the character of God is like Jesus, and Jesus showed us what God was like. There isn't a change here. So I have to wonder if there's another way. Because love transforms. Love helps you recover. Love helps you be renewed and restored. Only thing the Bible asks you to do is to turn around. The sneaky word is repent. But repent just means turn around. When you're wandering out with the pigs like the prodigal son, we're just asking you to turn and come back. That's what we're asking you to do. We know, no one needs to tell you, God knows, I know, I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I fall over. But as the children say, we fall over into Jesus. Because God already knows all of that. And those of you that know that God loves you, including all of that, he loves you while you were still his enemies. He wants to restore you and to fill you with love. And the closer you get to God, the more amazing things might happen. Pastor said two or three weeks ago that the strength of Peter and John out there with the action of the Holy Spirit was because of how close they were to Jesus. They didn't get more powerful. They didn't change. But they're able to heal people in the name of Jesus because of how close they were to Jesus. So we're not teaching perfection here. We're not teaching perfect behavior. But I will tell you that the closer you get to know Jesus, the more you get to know his care and love for you, you will change. And it will look like the things that we talk about. But we're not here to tell you to behave better. 
We're here to tell you to get closer. Because we know that the people that are closer to Jesus behave different. They aren't out about smiting their enemies. They want to restore them. They want to help recover them. They want to help them be transformed by the same love that is transforming us. That's what they want. That's what we want. That's what we want you to grow to do is to become those people, get closer and closer to Jesus. And then all of the stuff that smells like old school behavior that has been said here often will look like that. But that's not what we're pushing. We just want you to get closer to Jesus. And that is more what we'll look like. We won't look like a people that are selfish and self-driven and holding things back. Does that make sense? Okay? And so if God does look like that, do we think Jesus came to destroy? Because the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he came to destroy. It does talk about the destroyer, but if you read closely, the destroyer isn't necessarily from God. It happens around God, but it isn't exactly the same thing. We're on the back page now. So if the family of Acts other than the two people we talked about that held their stuff, knows how loving and great God is. What, what is. what is happening here? And I think one thing that we can say is that there's no immunity in rebellion. If you come here and you pretend you're like us, but you're against us, God can't be faked out. We might. We might think you're loving and all of that. We may not know. I mean, we just don't know. But the truth is the truth. Either you're changed by encountering God or you're not, right? And we can't tell. No one can tell by your behavior who you are. We can't tell those things. That's why the pastor's talking about people getting a life scan. (laughs) Because we can't tell when you're nice to the children if you're a nice person. We're protecting against those things with things like the life scan, because we can't tell by behavior what your heart is. But I still got to wonder, because it seems like in places in the Bible, it feels like God's saving some of his kids and killing others. So let me try to give you another point of view. In the end, we will read in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that God will come out of the clouds with all the voice of the angels and all the noise and those that are asleep will rise and be lifted up to God and those of us that remain will join them in the air. We will be drawn to Jesus and go up. Is that right, friends? Are we there? But it also says in Revelation 6.15 that there will be a group of people that cry out for the rocks to fall on them. That they're afraid by that event and they want to hide from it. It's the same event, but some are afraid of that and some are not. Let's go back to the Old Testament when they got the Ten Commandments. God came to the mountain before Moses got the tablets, and what was on the top of the mountain when God was there? Children, no? Anyone? Fire and smoke on the mountain. 
And Moses went up to the fire face to face to have breakfast. And everybody else said, Moses, you go on ahead and tell us what he said. Their reaction was fear, and they were afraid. But God isn't any different. Only Moses and the people are. The fire on the mountain is exactly the same. And you can also ask yourself, is the fire meant to destroy? And we talked about that in Daniel 3. The fire didn't destroy the boys, but it did destroy the wicked. Is that, is that really it? I mean, is the fire, is it going to destroy or not? It, it seems that it does both things, right? That there's a bit of something happening. Because in the end of Revelation, we have this everlasting fire that destroys the wicked at the second revelation, in the second resurrection, right? But is that what's going to happen to us? Because, I mean, the fire's there. What's going to happen to us? And I would submit to you to look near the bottom of your page here to Isaiah 33, 14. Uh, Janus. This is the verse we're talking about. Isaiah 33, 14 through 16. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. And I would submit to you, friends, that the God on high is of one thing, fire. And all of us will live there, and you'll be just fine. You're going to dwell among the everlasting fire, and God doesn't change. But the wicked that don't believe they are forgiven, that don't believe that God loves them, that same fire will destroy them. Because you will say, I don't want to be with God. I want to be away from God. And friends, God is life. You cannot leave God and live. You are not immortal. The only way that you can live and the only way you're alive right now is the breath of the Holy Spirit going in and out of you 12 times a minute. Whether you're a Christian or an atheist, the same thing is keeping you alive. Because if you really want to be away from God, you will die. That will happen to you. So when I was a very, very young firefighter, I'd worked three years as a volunteer, and I hadn't run a lot of calls as a volunteer. Most of the time your pager goes off and you rush to the station and then you wait for another call. And they don't often happen one after the other. And so then you go home. Sometimes it's a big fire or something you get to go, but most of the time you're second and late to the party and you get the bad work, not the fun front work. But eventually I got hired and I was a full-time firefighter and I was in the fire station running 10, 15 calls a day and learning what a real firefighting job was like. I was a young 25-year-old kid, a paramedic, riding around on a fire truck and one morning, super early in the morning, 
four, five in the morning. Sun wasn't quite up yet, but it was getting light. We got this fire, and it was at the far end of our district. And a lot of times, the way we station fire stations, you get a fire, and everybody around you comes toward you, and you get help pretty quick. But there are some weird places where you're at the edge of your universe, so to speak, and everybody coming is coming toward you, but they're coming farther away. You don't get the quick help because you're going to the edge and everybody's following you to the edge. And so you don't get all this instant people coming. And we have three people on our fire truck. The person that's driving, Ron Fugi, he's driving to this house and we can see smoke coming from a distance. So we know this is a real fire. And I'm wondering, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, I'm going to take the fire hose and go find fire. <laughs> I'm super excited, super excited. And I'm getting all my stuff on, and I'm trying to not get tangled, and I'm riding backwards in the back, and I'm out in the wind. Now everybody's all closed up, and it's windy, and I'm hoping nothing blows off, and I'm trying to make sure I have everything on. And I'm rushy, 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 and up front, the captain's looking at it. And when we first get there, I want you all to imagine here that over to the left far corner is all the fire and smoke in the back corner of the house. But it's inside with the back corner of the house. There's a front door about here in the middle. And while the captain quickly runs around the building to shut off the utilities and see what's going on, my job is to take the fire hose to the front door and open the front door. And sometimes you don't leave me a key, but I know how to get in anyway. And so I'm ready when the captain comes back. And while he comes back after he checks and tells people what's going on, he's finishing getting himself dressed up with a mask and, you know, an air pack to go into the fire. And then he says to me, and I don't expect this, he says, I'm taking the hose. Hmm. Because in the fire service, if you get the nozzle, the hose, the squirt gun, you never give that up. No one, no one can say, hey, hold this and take the nozzle from you. You will never see it again, friends. You've lost. This is the place to be. And I'm a rookie firefighter, and I've got the hose. And the captain says, give it to me. And you never give up the hose, except to the captain. The captain's the king of the country. And I have to give him the hose. I'm not happy about this, friends. I'm going to be following him in, watching him fight fire. This, this is sucks. This is wrong. This is unfair. But then he says to me, I'm going to the fire. You search all the bedrooms. By myself? I'm to search the bedrooms by myself. Because in training, you're always in these big teams and you're working together to carry people out and to find people and search people. It's all in teams. But in this case, on this day, with a house full of smoke, we didn't have time to both put the fire out and go get the people out before they die from breathing the smoke. And we don't have enough friends coming close enough to give it to the next person. So now I really have a real job. And I'm telling you, I am pumped, excited about this job. Because this job's really more important than fighting fire. I mean, fire is fun. Fighting fire is fun. But saving lives, helping people, 
is what I was built to do, and it's for me to do all by myself. I'm a grown-up. I'm doing search by myself. And I go down this long hallway, bedroom after bedroom, bedroom after bedroom, and you look under beds and in closets and on top and on bottom, and you're looking for anything that lives. And that includes puppies or cats. It's not just people, but you're looking to save everything. Because maybe everybody's already gone to work because they work in Los Angeles, and they got to get up three hours early, and maybe the house is empty, but they have a dog. And they're going to ask you when they come home, where's my dog? And that's all right by me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save something today. I'm really going to make a difference and save a life. Then I get down and I'm searching, and I'm searching fast because I'm breathing fresh air. I brought my own air in a bottle. I'm wearing a mask like this, and I've, I've got air. I'm good, but I also know that they're having a hard time to breathe in this fire. And the other thing you may not know, and if you don't have one, you should have one, is a smoke alarm. Because when you're asleep, your nose alarm doesn't work when you're asleep. You think that you'll wake up for bad choking smoke, but your brain is stupid and you won't wake up. And so you'll sleep through it and die. And this house doesn't have a smoke alarm when I go in there. It's not making noise. So if there's anybody in there, they're asleep. And I get down to the very last bedroom and there is somebody there. There's a man asleep in his bed in this house full of smoke and he's big and he's tall and he's heavy. And I got to take him out by myself and I can't wait for more help because there isn't any. And every minute he stays in there is a minute closer that he's going to die. And so I wrap him up in his own blanket and I start dragging him down the hall and he starts fighting with me because he's about to get kidnapped or murdered or something else. You know where the first story is now, don't you? The truth to him wasn't, I mean, it was true to him. I'm not calling him a liar. But he didn't have the same information that I'm having. And I'm trying to save his life. And he's big in heaven, he's fighting. And so I use him all wrapped up in his bed sheet to keep myself from getting punched in the face. But as he comes down the hall, we're going toward the smoke now because it's heavier toward the middle of the house. And he's having a hard time breathing and he's fighting me. And I'm about to get my butt beat by a big, tall, strong guy wrapped up in a bed sheet. He looks like a guy from the Ku Klux Klan, maybe, except he's laying on the ground. Anyway, I drag him out, I get to the front door, and I basically throw him out in the front yard. I literally threw him out of there and fell out of there myself, just trying to keep him from fighting and hope that when he comes up out of the front yard, he'll notice the big, fat, red fire truck in his front yard. And then he'll know what the truth is. He's not getting hurt. He's getting helped. And I think, friends, this is what we're talking about here. And the team can start coming up for the end because we're there. It matters very much what the real truth is, but it comes from your point of view. And the truth is God is what God is. And if you know that he is that and loves you, you will be drawn to it and you'll be fine there, whatever it is. And if you don't know that and you deny that and you reject that, no matter what Satan said, you will die. Are we going to let that happen? Because a lot of people around us, friends, don't know 
that they're going to die if they don't know how much God loves them and wants to be with them and how much he wants to restore them. He doesn't want them to be weak. He doesn't want them to be suffering. He doesn't want them to be frustrated. He doesn't want them to be lost. And we got to share that. You're missing opportunities in your walk that the pastor can't see. We can't pay Adam and Mel enough money to meet all the people that you're meeting. There's only two of them. And we've got to have all of you help them and help the rest of us know who God really is. And what they think and see is from the few of someone wrapped up in a bed sheet. And we've got to get their eyes open and to see the love of God clearly. And I've got to wonder this week, is there anybody you're going to be able to meet that won't be meeting Adam or Mel. Can you do your part to share however you do it? Not a Bible study. Just tell them something or invite them somewhere that we can make a difference. Our friends, we know we want the Lord to bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon you and bring you peace. We also invite every one of you to come to the potluck, whether you brought anything or not, because we got two loaves and five heads of fishes, and you're going to be fed just fine. We ask, Lord, that you bless this food, that you bless these people, that anyone that's just rowing to be with us, rowing, really gets drawn to know who you are and gets transformed, and that we don't miss our opportunity to just love someone a little more pass a little kindness a little more, and to show them the forgiveness you've given us. And if they don't know that, we ask you, Lord, to let them come to one of us and let us convince them that everyone is forgiven if they'll take it, that they are loved if they'll receive it, and that God only wants them to live, to live. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants them to live. We thank you for this message and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.